like to begin just by giving us a little bit of review, as is helpful when we have such a, a large book and a lot of content that we've been covering. And uh, we won't go all the way back to the beginning, but I just want to kind of map out for us what has happened. Last week, Chris Henson preached for us at the beginning of chapter 19, and as he did, he pointed out that there was really just a, a monumental movement of God in, in Acts and in that time and place in the, uh, in the Gentile world, particularly Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was a, a metroplex. It was one of the biggest city centers in the ancient world, uh, as we'll see today here a little bit. And Paul goes into the city, shares the gospel, as he's been doing all over the world. And when he gets in there, then a huge movement of God happens such that a large part of the city ended up becoming believers. Uh, and one of the things that they were heavily involved in was cult uh, practice and worship, and so they, they end up saying, you know what, we believe in Jesus now, and there are things in our lives that don't quite correspond uh, to being his followers. And so they recognized, we've got to drop the witchcraft, which is kind of an easy, easy answer for you. Like, well, I guess, I guess we should cut out all the witchcraft and sorcery. And so they, they burn all of the books that they have, which they could have sold. They could have done that to uh, get some money from it, but they lost a lot of money. Uh, and they, as they do that, there's just a huge movement of God. And so we see in verse 10, chapter 19, that it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, that's Asia Minor, both Jews and Greeks. And so the word goes forth from Paul's proclamation. But then in verse 20, we've kind of finished by saying, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's a theme in Acts that the word of God is moving throughout the world. And as it does, people become followers of Jesus Christ. They become disciples. And if we were to stop there, we would think the next logical step would be that more of the city is converted. Maybe the uh, Roman governor of the province or some other higher-ups end up becoming Christians and Christianity sweeps through Ephesus. And that's not what happens. Something unexpected happens on one hand, and on the other, it's not unexpected because there's a pattern emerging in Acts. And, and the pattern is this. The gospel, when it encounters cities, will take over cities. But at the same time, as that comes up, opposition also comes up against the gospel. And that's what we see happen this week. And so just to review with you very quickly, here's what's been going on. And I'll tell you, it's a little bit more work on the front end of the sermon that will make more sense at the end. But... Uh, I'll just review for you the missionary journeys that Paul has gone on. Okay, so we should have some, some maps of this for you. Uh, Paul's first missionary journey, it's a zoomed-in picture for you. He starts off in Antioch over there on the right, and then um, he ends up sailing over to Cyprus, the island, and kind of makes his way up in Asia Minor a little bit, and then backtracks and goes back to Antioch. And that trip took about one and a half years one and a half years of his life, along with some other people. After that, he goes on his second missionary journey from Antioch, which was the initial missionary goal from the first journey. And then they move up into the rest of the Asian world, all the way to the Mediterranean coast, where he goes around all the way to Athens, and then to Ephesus, and then back down to Jerusalem. And that's really where Acts chapter 18 ended, which Hudson preached for us two weeks ago. And then last week, 
was really the third missionary journey. So we're moving through time pretty quickly here. All of the three missionary journeys take about nine years. And in the third missionary journey, Paul sets forth again from Antioch, goes back up into the Asian world, to the Mediterranean coast, all, visits all the city he's been to, then goes and stays at Ephesus for an unprecedented amount of time, at least two and a half, maybe three years. He stays nowhere else as long as he does in Ephesus. And the result that we see is that the word of God prevailed mightily because of it. And as we see Paul going on those journeys, the pattern is that opposition will come up. And it certainly does come up. And this leads to the main point for today, which here it is for you. When believers own their faith, they will have unreasonable enemies and enduring friendships. When believers own their faith, they will have unreasonable enemies and enduring friendships. And uh, I'm going to break, break tradition for you. We will have not three, but four points today. Okay, four points. Uh, and we'll just kind of look at this in a couple different ways. We'll see that in the beginning of Acts chapter 19 and then halfway through 20, that believers have unreasonable enemies. And there's two points to consider on that. And then there's two points to consider on the enduring friendship side. So we'll just jump in and, and go for it. I'll start reading in verse 21. Now these events, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. I won't be going through every line of the text for you this morning just because we have so much of it, so I'll kind of piecemeal what uh, the high points are. But the first thing that we see here is that Paul has a goal, okay? And it's just worth mentioning because Luke is signaling to us something that's going to happen. And here we see for the first time that Paul has his destiny in view, that he knows one day he'll go to Rome and he'll die for the sake of the gospel. He'll be martyred for it by Caesar. And you can kind of sense that, see that in Paul, that at this point even he's like, you know what, I've shared the gospel almost everywhere except Rome, and I just have to go do it there as the last place. And so he makes up his mind to go do it, and something happens before he can do that. Verse 23, we see that circumstances arise in the city that keep him from going on to Rome. And so in some sense, this whole uh, sermon and the whole rest of these two chapters really is somewhat of an interlude. Paul wants to go to, go to Rome, Rome to share the gospel, but he can't. And here's kind of a, a parenthetical note, a big parenthetical note that Paul makes, uh, Luke makes here about Paul saying, he wants to go to Rome, but this has to happen first. Uh, and, and so that's today. I'll read for you in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, that means there's a ruckus, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, and the workmen in similar trades said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see 
and here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying the gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. We'll stop there for a second. So we see that the interlude that happens is because there's a riot in the city, or about to be a riot. A man named Demetrius, who's a silversmith, comes up and he says, you know what, I've had it with Paul. This is it. Can't take any more. And he really lodges three arguments against Paul. An economic argument, a cultural argument, and a religious one. He says economically, like, they're hurting our pocketbooks. This is a problem. Paul's gospel is a problem because we're not making as much money as we used to. And Demetrius is a, in an uh, influential place to say this sort of thing because he's most likely over the entire guild of people that worked in Ephesus to make these religious items. So he gets together all the people and he says, you know what, they're, Paul and Christianity have to stop because they're hurting our pocketbooks. He also says culturally there's a problem. Christianity, if we embrace it, will destroy our way of life. It will destroy our culture. With the gods, and it's a little humorous, but he says, Paul's saying to people, like, get what Paul's saying. Paul's telling people the things that we make with our hands are not actually gods. That's his argument, and all the people who are making them say, that's right, Paul is ludicrous. Sort of a, a funny commentary that Luke gives us here. Who's actually in the ones that are being ridiculous about this? But then he also gives a religious argument, he says, that if this continues, if Paul, the great goddess Artemis, and that may not strike you too powerfully, that may not hit you too, too uh, strongly, but for them, it was a tremendous thing, tremendous. And I thought about this, there's really no equivalent for us in our culture, because for, uh, for Demetrius and his, his followers and, and the workers, they, they had a situation that we just, we don't have and can't have. You see, Artemis worship, this goddess, was at the center of their civic, economic, and religious matters. To bring dishonor to Artemis, this goddess, would have been the most ridiculous thing that you could do. It would be the most treasonous thing that you could do outside of saying that there was another Roman emperor. And it's not really a Roman city, even though it's under Roman jurisdiction. And so we see that Demetrius and his, his group are upset about this. And the pervading belief in Ephesus was that Artemis was the greatest goddess ever. And just to give you some ideas about it, I'll uh, give you the slide here. But here's kind of a reconstruction of what the temple of Artemis would look like. It was massive. It was one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world. People from all over the world came to this place to worship Artemis. There's a number of quotes uh, in it, antiquities that we have about it that speak about how great this place was. Pliny the Elder, who's a person during the time, commented that it was the most wonderful mon monument of Grecian magnificence. You couldn't find anything better 
in the Greek world than this temple. It was, in fact, the biggest temple in the Greek world. And so what happens when you have that sort of commerce and foot traffic? You have people coming, thousands and thousands of people coming to buy things. And we know this because if you've ever been to Disney World, you know what I'm talking about. Or Disneyland, for that matter. When you go there, there's an immense amount of stuff. Like, you go there for the experience and the rides and, and the story and all that. But when you get there, what, it, what happens? You leave bankrupted because you spend all your money on high-priced food and all sorts of trinkets and items. And it's the same thing here with the temple. You go to this huge temple, and there are people all over the place selling their religious items. And that's what Demetrius and his, his uh, partners are doing is they're sent, selling these little miniature figure, figures of the goddess Artemis. Little shrines so that people could take them, bring them back home, put them in their homes, and worship them. And we actually probably uh, have a good idea of what this would be like. And I found a picture of, of what this would look like in the figure for uh, Artemis. That's not actually Artemis. Um, it's kind of not G-rated, so I just decided to put Thor up there instead since it's a fifth Sunday. But that's the idea, that they would go and they would buy these little figurines of gods, take them back to their homes, install them somewhere, and worship them. And as that's happening, we see that you could not get closer to the heartbeat of the Ephesians than to talk negatively about Artemis. Artemis was the center of their way of life. And there's lots of reasons and kind of cultural um, fun things to note that they believed about Artemis. That she was, she was the uh, mother goddess in some sense and, and helped all women in childbearing, which is certainly one way to get a following. Um, and, and, uh, and she contributed to their society and was a great huntress and all sorts of fun things. But it's to say that Artemis is the central figure in their culture. There's nobody more important than Artemis except for, as we see, Jesus for the believers. And so that changes things for them. It changes things for the Ephesians and certainly for, for Demetrius. And what's the response? In verse 28, we see that they heard this, the, uh, the, the co-laborers, with Demetrius, they heard this and were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. And then in verse 34, But when they recognized that he was a Jew, that's Alexander, he, for about two hours they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is remarkable. This is like going to a game at A&M. Or any other sort of college football game. There is such an enormous amount of energy and effort and investment going on that they just catch wind that some foreigner is going to talk to them about Artemis. And for two hours, they can't stop shouting the greatness of Artemis. She's huge. And so they... they get Paul's companions and throw them into the theater. And the theater was tremendous. It, it seated at least 24,000 people. This theater was, 
was in construction for over 200 years and at this point was virtually finished. And so you have 24,000 people, probably more, gathered, bursting at the seams, all upset at Paul. And I just, as I was reading, I had to stop and wonder, like, what would it look like if there was a church that was this passionate about Jesus? You know? What would it look like if, if we caught wind of some, some heresy or somebody elevating someone else other than Jesus in our lives, and then for two hours we would gather together to say, it can't be so. No one is more important to us than Jesus. It's an absolutely remarkable thing, the passion of the Ephesians here. And it's certainly something that if they're that passionate about a God who's not really a God, then why not be more passionate about Jesus? There's a certain indictment to have on us from the Ephesians, I think. So we see that the, the believers, when they make this sacrifice, this choice to commit to Jesus, they have unreasonable enemies. And it's because of the revolutionary claims of Christianity, the revolutionary claims of Christ. You see, when Paul came and started sharing the gospel with him and told him about Jesus, Demetrius understood what he's saying. Demetrius understood that if Jesus is God, if he's Lord, that means everything in my life has to change, including my belief of Artemis. Everything has to change. And it's the exclusive claims of Christianity that brought about the change in the city that he's seeing. That they're lacking money because people aren't worshiping fake idols, fake gods, idols. They're worshiping the real risen Savior, Jesus. And this is something that we need. We need this revolutionary gospel. And if it changed Ephesus, it can change us. And I'm sure for you, like for me, if you believe Jesus, then you've interacted with this somewhat. That at some point, you heard something revolutionary. And our world doesn't really like it these days, like most days in history. But when you hear that there is no other way to God except Christ, that's revolutionary. And other things tagged along with the gospel and the Bible and God's truth how do people respond today to the statement that marriage should be between one man and one woman? It's exclusive, isn't it? Or that there's only two genders, male and female, created in the image of God. You see, the way that that kind of offends us and we can sense that sort of difficulty is the way it was for Demetrius. He hears it and he says, wait a second, what you're saying is my entire way of thinking about life is wrong. Yes, that is the case. And it's the case with everyone who does not believe and put their hope in Christ. And so Demetrius becomes unreasonable by it. And people will do that in our life. Certainly in our life. And we need to be prepared for that and not surprised by it. We see that the gospel of Jesus is revolutionary, but there's something else about it. Second point, another reason that it causes unreasonable enemies is because the gospel of Jesus is reasonable. Now, this one's a little bit harder to get, requires a little bit more thought, but 
you could say it this way, that the gospel of Jesus is revolutionary, okay? So it's upturning the society, but at the same time, it's reasonable. And that may seem like the two don't go together, but they actually do. And we'll see why. The town clerk gets brought into this episode, who's the person with the most authority in this city. And what happens? We'll skip down to verse 37, where he kind of gauges the situation, tries to calm down the Ephesians from this riot. And then he says, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against one another, against anyone, the courts are open. And there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. And then in verse 44, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. The town clerk essentially comes in to say, why are we here? Why are we here? There's over 24,000 people spitting mad, looking to kill Paul, and Paul's not there. And then he essentially says, what are you doing? Why are we here? Now, some of the motive, I'm sure, is to say, uh, yes, this doesn't make sense. They haven't done anything wrong. But then also, part of the motive as the town clerk is to keep the peace. And if he were to lose the peace as a free status city in the Roman Empire, Rome would have to bring down the hammer and they would lose their freedom as a city. They would take on Roman occupation again. That's something he certainly doesn't want to happen. But the interesting thing here is that he notices clearly that Paul and Christianity are no threat to the city. Straight from the official's mouth. They're not sacrilegious or blasphemers. They're not, yes, they may have different beliefs than you, but that doesn't mean they're destroying your way of life. And man, this is just something written for today. It happens all the time. The town clerk essentially says that the ones who are in danger of law-breaking are not the Christians. It's the pagans. The people who worship Artemis are actually the people who are doing the wrong thing. They're creating civil unrest. They're the ones who are at fault. And, and this happens a lot. And I think it's probably going to continue to intensify, but today uh, in something that we have called the tolerance movement. And just to talk about it briefly for you, I think everyone could probably recognize in different areas of your life uh, or in the news or even Facebook, just pull that thing up, happens all the time. But what, what is going forth all the time in terms of arguments? Tolerance. Tolerance is happening. Hate speech. D.A. Carson wrote a great book a few years back called The Intolerance of Tolerance, and, and I'll just summarize it for you. But he says this, that an older view of tolerance was to say that you can disagree with each other. Do it all you want. Say your beliefs, why you believe them, have arguments, have debates, do all that kind of thing, because eventually the truth will come out. So as you're talking about whether, Demetri uh, whether uh, Demetrius' argument, whether you know, Artemis is the best God or Jesus is the best God, the original way of viewing tolerance was to say, talk about it. Interact with their other ideas. Why? Because the truth will come out. There is ultimate truth. 
And so we will know after talking, thinking, and reasoning what is actually right and what's actually wrong. That's not the view of tolerance that we have today. That's not the view of tolerance that's going on in the the news and everywhere else that's impacting our conversations. The view of tolerance that we have today, which was kind of redefined about uh, 50 years ago, if you want to do the, the scholarship on it, is that it's not debate freely, but if you disagree with me, you're a horrible person. You see, the view of tolerance that we have today is, is abstract of absolute truth. If you remove truth, then what you end up saying to people, and I know this, this kind of mentally engages you pretty severely, but just think about it. If you remove truth and you talk about tolerance, then really what you're saying is, you're just a horrible person if you disagree with me. That's really is what is happening underneath the argument. So we see it happening as hate speech is being, being lofted all over the news for different reasons, but especially for historic Christian beliefs. If you disagree with somebody that Jesus has to be the only way to God, people will get upset about that. And very commonly today, it's labeled what? As hate speech. Because truth is not in view. How people feel is in view. And what's true is determined by the culture. And there's lots of different ways that you could think about this and how it interacts with historic Christian beliefs that the Bible shows us. That people are made in God's image, male and female. Will you disagree about that? You're a horrible person. It was the same in Paul's day as it is today. The same sort of thing is going on. You see, the gospel of Jesus is revolutionary, and that's why we have unreasonable enemies, but also because it's reasonable. Paul steps in, and he reasons with people, and when he reasons with people about how how Jesus is the Son of God, how He came to rescue man from their sins, how men always do the worst things, destroy society and need a Savior. People hear that and they say, that's not what I believe. So they get angry about it. Some years ago, I had a, a job as a landscape lighting technician, which is a fancy way of saying that I put lights in the ground. And as I did that for about a year and a half, one of the coworkers I had, his name was Travis, and Travis, I love Travis. Uh, we uh, became pretty good friends, and it came from completely different worldviews. He did not believe in Jesus, did not believe in Christianity. He thought the whole thing was just um, a made-up system to help control people. And we would dialogue about this day in and day out, driving in a, a stinky, dirty van to work sites, coming home. And I would share the gospel with him at least once a week. I tried every day. Sometimes he would just say, all right, that's enough, Jesus, for now. Just leave me alone. Um, and, and eventually, after a while, it was towards the end of a year and a half, we were having a really great day, working out in kind of a, a beautiful estate. And we are having a lunch break. And he asked me out of the blue. He says, so you really believe that if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to die and go to hell? And I said, that's what Jesus says. 
And he said, well, I guess I'm hopeless. And I said, no, you are not hopeless. Your hope is Jesus. And he didn't believe. I still pray for him. I hope God would save him. But that became for us such a, a great basis for our relationship and our friendship that, that what was happening with him? He was entering into a conversation where he said, you know what? I know what you believe is revolutionary, but at least you're honest about it. Like, at least you're willing to talk with me about real issues. And he's still a friend. And I can still reach out to him over Facebook. And we need this. And so why do I bring all that up and and talk about it? Because there's other things that we could talk about. But I think it's really important for us as a church and for us as a Christian community. You see, you can do this as a believer. But a couple things I think it means. All this, the gospel being revolutionary and reasonable. One is that it makes us people who do not need to be afraid of interacting with secular arguments or violent people. You don't need to be afraid about it. Why? It's because the truth will win out. Eventually, and you may die. That's what happens with Paul and other people. But what does that do? It only verifies that even though these claims are radical and revolutionary of the gospel, that you have to believe It produces a people that are reasonable. And so the the second thing would be that this makes a people who don't need to use physical force to prove our point. And this is the Christian position. That you don't have to use physical force to win over arguments. You put the information out there. You talk about how wonderful Jesus is. And at the end of the day, you have a meal with people. You love them. You interact with them. And this is something that we see in the life of Christ as well. What did he say in Matthew 10? It shouldn't surprise us that I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus says, you will have enemies in this life. Or in John 15, that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And we often forget this next part. If, you, if they keep my word, They will keep your word. You see, believers will have unreasonable enemies, and this is the same sort of thing that happened to Jesus. But it's not just the unreasonable enemies that we get. That wouldn't be much good news if that's all we got. We also have enduring friendships, and that's what we see in the next chapter in verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, So the crowd's dismissed, comes to nothing. Christians are vindicated. And after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions, he had given them much encouragement and came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So we're just tracking with Paul moving trying to get back to Jerusalem. And then it says in verse 4, that so Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him and the Thessalonians, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Derby, Timothy, the Asians, Tychicus, Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So what is the point of that other than a bunch of difficult names to say? Well, Luke is telling us after this huge emotional episode in Ephesus is that Paul's not alone. 
He's not alone. Paul has spent nine years evangelizing and going throughout the world, discipling people. And as he does, Luke gives us just a synopsis of what this does for Paul. What it does for Paul. You see, Gaius and Timothy are from Paul's first missionary journey. So Peter, Aristarchus, and Secundus are from Paul's second missionary journey. Tychicus and Trophimus are from this last missionary journey. So at the end of Paul running around, going throughout the world, what he has is seven men, after nine years of giving his life, day in, day out, staying up late, making tents, arguing with people, being beaten, all sorts of things going on on extravagant ships across the sea. After nine years, he has seven men. And it may not seem much, but these seven men represent different churches. And so Paul here, at the end of all his labor, before he goes to Jerusalem and then back to uh, try to go to Rome, he has seven men that have stood the trials with him and are encouraging him after one of the most difficult times of his life. And as I read that, I can't help but think about me. I can't help but think about us in this church. We're coming up on the eighth anniversary as a church together. And not that we have a correlation necessarily with Paul one for one years, but I wonder what sort of fruit has come of the church after eight years. Are there people that are willing to join with someone else and say, you know what, I'm willing to do something radical for the gospel. I mean radical. I saw this at uh, a good church and some friends that we had from uh, Louisville, a missionary or a, a church planter stepped up and said, I believe God's calling me to plant in Beaumont, Texas, which is not the best place in the world. Just saying. If you're from Beaumont, no offense, but uh, it smells out in Beaumont if you haven't noticed. But he said, I love the city. I love the people. And so I'm going to go. And so he stood up on a Sunday morning and said, I'm going to Beaumont, Texas to plant a church and share the gospel. Talk to me after the service if you're interested. And I thought, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm from Houston. I know Beaumont. Who's going to go? The guy had seven families uproot their lives, find new jobs in Beaumont, and go plant a church with him. Incredible. And that's the same sort of thing that's happening with Paul here. That after all his effort, after all his, his discipling and evangelizing, in nine years, he has men who will stand with him in the worst times of his life. And I wonder if that's true for us. Is God doing that sort of thing? I hope he is. And I don't think we're there. I don't think we're there at a point where we can say, you know what, here's someone worthy and called to plant a church. Go with him. But if we did, would there be people that would be willing to do that? Think about it. Change your, change your life. Find a new job, get a new house, find a new community, engage the city. This is the sort of teamwork that's required in the Gospels and in Acts. The Gospel of Jesus requires this sort of teamwork, and Paul has it. He has it. And the last thing that we see is that the Gospel of Jesus also not only requires this teamwork, but rearranges our priorities. I won't read the whole thing for you, but the last part in Acts 20, 
goes like this, that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with him, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and as a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. What in the world? What in the world? This is one of those little parts in Scripture that you just kind of wonder, like, that's amazing. Why? Like, why include that? And that's part of the point. As Luke is recording Paul's missionary movements, as he's trying to get back to Jerusalem as fast as he can, at the same time, you see him ringing out every second he can get with believers. Every second. And he does, as he does this, we get this episode of Eutychus, a young man. Uh, the word in Greek gives you the idea of someone between 8 to 14 years old, so it could be a teenager falls out of the, the window and dies. And uh, you might say, well, you should probably stay in, awake next time, Eutychus. But um, this is, I mean, it's somewhat reasonable because there's, there's a lot of theological education going on here. And this is what Paul's doing. He says, I have to, have to change my life and get other people to change their life so that they learn. So they rearrange their priorities. And so he stays up. He starts talking. It says it two times in the text that he was speaking a long time and he was still talking longer. So the idea is Paul just keeps going. So you think an hour-long sermon's bad. Like, this guy speaks till midnight until someone dies and the kind of flow of it is just to say, yeah, he died and Paul healed him and he's resurrected and now he's back here and Paul picks right back up. Doesn't skip a beat. He's like, yeah, someone died. It's okay. They're back alive. Okay, as I was telling you, super lapsarianism in Christ, okay? So he's, he's doing all he can to instill in them a love for the scriptures and a love for theology because he knows he's not going to see him again. This is the last time that he's going to see him. And he says, before I leave, I want you to know God. I have theology to teach you. Let me teach you. And what do they do? They don't say, yeah, let's uh, set something on the calendar for next month, maybe. No, all night long, they stay up listening to Paul. They rearrange their priorities. And it's not like they didn't have problems the next day. I'm sure they were tired, but still they said, you know what? This is worthy of our life. And so the point with Eutychus is to say, God is worthy of your time, your life. Things will come, things will go but we must give ourselves to good theology and the preaching of the word. And this shouldn't be a surprise for us because as, it, as we do that, it creates a community. This is what Jesus says in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul had unceasing love for these disciples. And we see in his life and the other believers that when they, when they own their faith, they had unreasonable enemies and enduring friendships. And just to close, if you didn't notice, 
the main point is staged in such a way that it's not true for everybody. When believers own their faith, it's completely possible to be a believer and not really own your faith. To be disobedient, to not really care. But if you do, you will have unreasonable enemies and enduring friendships. And this is what Jesus does for us, to give us a life that is harder than we could ever expect, but more rewarding than we could possibly imagine. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for sending your son, giving himself for us, his life, his death, his resurrection on our behalf. God, we ask that you would give us such a mind to be willing to accept the criticism, accept the difficulty that comes with engaging people who believe differently, who think differently than we do. God, we ask that you would give us a generous spirit to win them over with persuasive arguments and kindness. God, we also ask that you continue to build in our own church community this sort of idea that it's worth rearranging our life, that it's it's worth working together as a team in all different kinds of ways for your gospel. And your gospel is far more important than one man and what he can do requires everyone. Lord, so we ask that you would do this. We thank you for your son. In his name, amen. Every week here at Christ Communion Church, we respond to the preaching of the word by taking communion where we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you believe that, please come on down and take some of the bread, tear it off, dip it in the juice, and remember Christ. You can pray there or with your family on the side. And we have a gluten-free option for you on the side as well. When you're ready, please come and take